realize that from the dawn of time, people just like you and me, without a single exception, have lived with the hope of a coming Savior. The first promise of Jesus' birth is found in Genesis, the third chapter. Right after sin entered the picture in His love and mercy, God immediately revealed a way for us to be forgiven and for us to be restored to Him. And for generations after that, people lived in anticipation of the first coming of Jesus. And it's a matter of historical record that it happened. The Savior came to earth, born of a virgin during the reign of Caesar Augustus. And the reality of Jesus' first coming is celebrated by over two billion people all over the world during the Christmas season each year. God has never left His people without hope, not even for a day. Because on that very day that Jesus left earth and ascended into heaven, these prophetic words were spoken by angelic messengers in Acts chapter 1 verse 11. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen Him go into heaven. And so, for over 2,000 years now, we have lived with the expectation of the second coming of Jesus to the earth. So during this Christmas season, 2013, we're focusing on what life should look like for us as people who are living in eager anticipation of Jesus' return. And the fact is, Jesus has given us His words to guide us. He has said, until I come again, and then a series of statements. We looked at one of them last week. Until I come again, be comforted. And this morning, until I come again, be warned. Now we all know about warnings. The American Cancer Society has saved thousands of lives by educating the public about the seven warning signs of cancer. And many have been saved by early detection and treatment, motivated, motivated by these warning signs. Warnings are actually a part of our daily routine. You find warnings on everything from infant car seats to prepackaged foods. But I wonder, I wonder, don't you, if we really need some of these warnings on our Christmas gifts. Take a look at these actual warning labels on products. There's one. The terrestrial digital outdoor antenna, warning, do not attempt to install if drunk or pregnant or both. <laughs> Listen, if she's drunk and pregnant, is falling off the roof really her biggest worry? I don't know. Look at this one. The Vidal Sassoon hair dryer, warning, do not use while sleeping. How are we going to manage to get the hair of our dreams? Quick, get another one up there. The iPod Shuffle. Warning, do not eat the iPod Shuffle. You know, even if you take a bite out of your iPod, in three months, Apple is just going to come out with one that tastes a little better. Look at this one. The Ro Roanetta Iron. Do not direct steam at people or animals or iron clothes while they are being worn. It kind of begs the real question, can we go ahead and iron clothes while the animals are still wearing them? 
Here's another. Black Cat Fireworks, warning, flammable, do not put in mouth. Really, we've seen Wiley e. Coyote do it a million times. Here's one. The Razor Go-Kart. Warning, this product moves when used. You mean that's, that's not just a cool-looking lounge chair there? Here's one. The Superman costume. Some of you know this one. Warning. <laughs> Wearing of this garment does not enable you to fly. Thousands of kids were disappointed when they read that warning label. But they were relieved that they could still convert it into free candy at the door at Halloween. Look at this one. Nabisco Easy Cheese. Warning. For best results, remove cap. supposed to be easy. <laughs> what about this one? The Dremel electric rotary tool. This product is not intended for use as a dental drill in human or veterinary medical applications. So who knew there were so many work from home dentists and veterinarians? Look at this one. This says Autoshade windshield visor. Warning. Some of you know this is true. Warning. Do not drive with sunshade in place. Remove from windshield before starting ignition. Okay. Can we go ahead and keep our blindfolds on? <laughs> what about this? Duraflame fire logs. Warning. Risk of fire. <laughs> well, you know their service hotline is just flooded with complaints. <laughs> Funny thing about warnings. They can make you feel secure, or they can make you feel insecure. Warnings can be appreciated, or they can be resented. A significant amount of Jesus' teaching is warnings. In several places, you'll read the word beware, and the word beware means to be aware. It means to be wary. Be on your guard. And the passage I want us to study together this morning is Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 12. And in Luke 12, we have words of warning that are relevant to all of us who seek to live faithfully for Him until He comes again. And the first warning is, be on your guard, Jesus said, against hypocrisy. Jesus began to speak first to His disciples, saying, be on your guard, beware, against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I like the way the message puts it. It says, watch yourselves so you don't get contaminated with Pharisee phoniness. Friends, there are hypocrites in every walk of life, people who try to fool or impress others but they're consciously hiding their true character. You know as well as I do that people are not always what they appear to be. And these people know that they're pretending. And they hope that they will not be exposed. Now, it's easy to see why Jesus gave this warning to His disciples at this particular time. He had just finished confronting the Pharisees in the earlier chapter, Luke chapter 11, he pronounced a series of six specific woes on the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy. And on another occasion, Jesus referred to them as whitewashed caskets, impressive on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. 
In chapter 11 of Luke, verse 39, Jesus indicted their hypocrisy this way. He said, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of wickedness. It's also easy to see why Jesus gave this warning specifically to His disciples, because very soon He would be leaving them on their own, He would not be present, and He knew that they might be tempted to compromise their spiritual leadership for popularity, or that they might fall into the deadly trap of insincerity and pretension. The word for hypocrite comes from the Greek word which means actor or someone who plays a part. And Jesus desires that His people be authentic, that they be truthful, that they be totally trustworthy. So, how do you avoid hypocrisy? I think one way is you realize how it will take over your life. Jesus refers to it here as leaven or yeast. In other words, starts out very small, but it grows quickly to consume your character and distort your personality. You tolerate just a little bit of pretension, just a little bit of deceit, a little bit of hypocrisy, and it'll take you over. Hypocrisy is to pretend. To pretend is to lie. To lie is to sin. And according to Revelation 21, 8, the home of unrepentant liars will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which is the second death. Now, these are the words of Scripture. The second way to keep hypocrisy out of your life is to realize how futile it is. It's just a futile way to live your life on two or more tracks. If you are insincere, if you are deceitful, Luke chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus said this same passage, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. In other words, it is impossible to keep your true self hidden. You just can't do it. Before long, you'll be exposed. You cannot hide behind a mask forever. Sooner or later, the mask will slip down and your true face will be revealed. Young and old alike, listen, it is, this is absolute in the teaching of Jesus. It is absolute. Whatever it is that you're doing secretly right now, it is going to come out. It is going to be known, especially in this age of video surveillance and cell phone cameras. And even if you could temporarily get away with having a secret life of shame, no matter how good you think you are at covering up your secrets... Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So if it comes down to what's stronger in us, the fear of God or the approval of people, our, our love for and our loyalty to God had better matter more to us than impressing people, fooling people. Jesus said it like this in the same context, Luke 12, verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has the power to 
to throw you into hell. I tell you, yes, I tell you, fear him. And I remind you, this is said in the context of a warning against hypocrisy. Now, here's the second warning from Jesus in our text. He says, be on guard against greed. Chapter 12, verse 15, watch out, Jesus said. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, the context here is right in the middle of Jesus' teaching, he's interrupted by a man who's having a dispute with his brother over an inheritance. The man recognized Jesus' rabbinical authority to render legal judgment, but the Lord refuses to get involved because he knew it would not solve the real problem, which was greed in the hearts of the two brothers. Their greatest need was not to have their disagreement settled. It was to have their hearts changed. So Jesus went on to tell the parable of a rich farmer who ran out of room to store his harvested crops. So rather than distribute his excess to people in need, he determined he would just build bigger barns to store all his grain and goods. He saw the great American dream becoming a reality, an early retirement, perpetual rest and relaxation, daily self-indulgence with food and drink and parties. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is a number of times he repeated the first-person pronoun, I, my, mine. Twelve times in five verses, he believed his life was to be lived for himself. But his life was not his. His life was on loan from God. And for those who say, my life is up to me, no, your life is not your own. It is on loan from God. And God took back the life of the rich fool. You fool, this night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And then Jesus added these words, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up for himself but is not rich toward God. You see, the rich fool invested himself in things that will not last. He leveraged all his time, all of his energy, and all of his abilities for the temporal and the self-serving. And he completely neglected the eternal. And if you live your life that way, it is a fool's game. Now, there's a very natural transition into the third warning here. Jesus said, be on your guard against worry. Chapter 12, verse 22. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Have you noticed that every one of these warnings so far that Jesus has given us has to do with the inner life? It has to do with the heart. Hypocrisy has to do with the heart, the inner life. And greed has to do with the inner life. Now worry is like that. Fear and anxiety happen in the recesses of our minds. And according to the grammar here, Jesus is not suggesting that we not worry. He is commanding us not to worry. So why is this seemingly harmless indulgence a danger that we need to be warned about? Well, one reason is that worry robs life of its joy. 
And God wants to, us to experience an abundant life. He wants us to experience a life of joy, and worry robs us of that joy. The old English word for worry comes from an Anglo-Saxon word that means to strangle. Corrie ten Boom was confined to a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. She was separated from her family. She did not know about their welfare. She could have worried, but instead she wrote these words, worry does not empty the future of its sorrow, it empties today the present of its strength. And then at the root of worry is a lack of trust in God. You boil it all down. The pagan world, Jesus said, runs after such things. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? How are we going to be clothed? And Jesus said, your heavenly Father knows you need these things. Seek first the kingdom, and these things will be provided for you as well. And so worry takes it out of God's hands, puts it in our hands, and demonstrates a lack of trust. Thirdly, to soothe worry, people will often commit other sins. Worry gives rise to other sins. Sometimes people will steal or lie or cheat or escape into food or drink or work or sex or drugs or spending to quiet their fears, to escape their anxiety. And fourthly, worry has adverse physical consequences. I've read studies that estimate half of all hospital beds in America are occupied by anxiety-ridden patients. Well, like greed, worry is an indicator. It's like a red flag that reveals that our focus is too much on this world. Our hearts are more anchored in the here than they are in the hereafter. Let these words of Jesus just kind of wash over you this morning in this chapter, Luke 12, 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Here's another warning from Jesus in this passage. He said, be on your guard against idleness. Verse 35, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come again at an hour when you do not expect Him. Someone once said in jest, Jesus is coming again. Quick, look busy. Well, do you believe that when Jesus reveals in this passage that he will come like a thief in the night or like a master who returns prematurely, a master who returns unexpectedly and calls his servant in for an accounting. Now, Jesus said, if that servant has said to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, so what does he do in the master's absence? He mistreats others under his charge, and he's unproductive. He's eating, he's drinking, he's getting drunk. According to the text, when the master does return, here's what Jesus said will happen. Chapter 12, verse 47. The servant who knows his master's will and does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Folks, I think this may be the most unsettling verse in the Bible. 
for me personally. Because as I look back at my past and I assess my present, I know how much I have been given. So I know how much will be demanded. I know how much has been entrusted to me. So I know how much will be asked. I do not want to live up to my name. Idle man. Don't want to live up to it. You know, I think most of us have the idea, like that servant, I think we have the idea that, that we got time. We got time to get our priorities straight. We got time to get our hearts right. We got time to break that habit. We've, we've got time to begin that discipline. We got time to learn more, give more, witness more, serve more. Listen, my friends, today is a day to pull a trigger on those desired changes. Every day you put it off, you'll be less impressed with the urgency of doing the Master's will in His absence. You see, it's most likely that the person you are today is the person you will be when you die. The person you are today, most likely, is the person you will be when Christ returns. Well, finally, Jesus warns, until I come again, be on your guard against spiritual dullness. Verse 54, this is Jesus. When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when you see the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Friends, mankind is so, so intelligent. In recent years, there have been amazing advances technologically. What is routinely being done in the medical field today was unimaginable a decade ago. Architects and engineers team up to do incredible projects these days. And yet, look at our rapidly decaying society. What's, what's wrong? How can we be de degenerating even while we're advancing? How can we accomplish so much and still be moving ever closer to the brink of self-destruction, folks? The reason for our decline is our growing national and personal ungodliness. And I don't think the rank and file in politics gets it. I don't think the rank and file in business gets it. I don't think the mainline media, the entertainment world, even some in the religious world, they don't get it. But former United States Court of Appeals judge Robert Bork got it. You know, he died shortly before Christmas just a year ago, just last year. He was ahead of his time when he wrote his 1996 book, Slouching Toward Gomorrah. You'll recognize the name Gomorrah. That's of biblical Sodom and Gomorrah infamy. Sodom and Gomorrah were cities that were destroyed because of their decadence, because of their ungodliness. 
Did you know that the title of Bork's book, Slouching Toward Gomorrah, is actually taken from the last line of a poem written by W.B. Yeats in the aftermath of the First World War. And he titled his poem, The Second Coming. Here's the last line of that poem. And what rough beast its hour come round at last, slouches toward... Now, Yeats's word was Bethlehem. Bethlehem to be born. That's what the poem originally said. Bork substituted the word Gomorrah. Bork interprets the rough beast in this verse to be moral decadence that is sending America slouching, not toward Bethlehem, the city of peace and hope, but towards Gomorrah, the city of despair and doom. Bork said, there's an eager and growing market for depravity and profitable industries devoted to supplying it. And he asserts that our wholesale cultural decline in America is the result of degeneracy, and he specifically identifies increased violence and sex in the mass media, the legalization of abortion and assisted suicide, the destructive influence of the feminist movement and the gay movement on the nuclear family, and the decline of too many churches. Judge Robert Bork wrote, if we slide into a modern high-tech version of the Dark Ages, we will have done it to ourselves without the assistance of the German tribes that destroyed Roman civilization. He said, we're living through a cultural collapse. And modern corporations are presiding over that collapse, grabbing everything they can on the way down. He said, the upshot is that American culture is in freefall with the bottom fast approaching. Now, Judge Bork wrote those words 20 years ago. And today, today, friends, we're not slouching toward Gomorrah. We are sprinting toward Gomorrah with our heads held high and our fists pumping with determination and our chests swelling with pride. The Yeats poem, The Second Coming, also has this line, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Sadly, this seems to me to be an accurate description of where we are now. So, so tell me this, how can we be so bright? and yet so dim? How can we be so intelligent and yet so ignorant? How can we be so mentally sharp and yet so spiritually dull? Jesus asks then and now. How can you see clouds rising in the west and anticipate rain? And it does. Or feel the south wind blow and expect it will be hot? And it is. And yet not be able to interpret this present time and what will happen if you don't heed the warnings about my coming again. But I want to ask you to set aside the national application of his words. 
Jesus does have a corporate application of his words here when he talks about spiritual dullness. I'd like for you to set it aside, and I want you to think about the personal application here for a moment. You march to the beat of a different drum in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your family circle. Will you be on guard against hypocrisy and greed and worry and idleness and spiritual dullness? That's the question. Pray with me. Our Father, thank you. Thank you for the clear warnings from our Lord about how we should live in this present age as we anticipate His coming again. Lord, uh, in these moments, seal truth in our hearts and may we live it out day by day, day after day. We pray, our Father, we pray for these warnings to give us security, not contribute to our insecurity, for these warnings to be appreciated and not to be resented. We embrace them from our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.